Well, good morning. Uh, I'm Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, uh, please, you know, stop me on your way out. Uh, I'd love to meet you and reach out to you. I, I, because I don't want to miss saying this at the end, we are not meeting next Sunday, which is Christmas Day. I know that might seem extremely ironic. Um, but we, instead, we are meeting Friday night, Christmas Eve Eve, here at 7 o'clock. Okay? So that's where we're going to uh, hang out. It'll be great. The kids will be in here. Uh, we'll have sitters for the pre-K, and uh, we'll have hot chocolate. We'll play a movie afterwards for the kids. We'll hang out uh, and have a good time. And we'll, we'll worship, and we'll have a sermon and stuff like that too, right? Uh, that's assumed, I guess. Um, so this is going to be an interesting sermon on the crucifixion because... Frankly, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the crucifixion itself. I know that sounds weird, um, but the fact that we're going through the Gospel of John and we're going to Jesus' death as we're going towards Christmas, his birth, is somewhat ironic, right? And so, so as, we, as we bring these things together, I want us to focus on John 19.30, what we just read. And we're going to be jumping all around Scripture, so if you have a pencil out or a pen, something to write on, uh, notes on your, on your phone, whatever. It, it's going to be worthwhile because what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to start all the way back and we're going to look at, uh, you can go to 1930, where Jesus says, it is finished. It's finished. Oh, uh-oh, that's my fault. Sorry. <laughs> go to the next slide. Uh, one, one more. There you go. So when Jesus had received, so it is finished. <laughs> it's good. It's good. Just stay right there. Sorry, that's my. That's totally my fault. Um, what's finished? We're two thousand years later. Like, doesn't seem very finishedy, right? We're we're all still here. Um, so what's Jesus talking about? Is he saying I am finished? He isn't. He, he's using the wrong tense of the verb if he was. He doesn't say, I'm finished. He's not saying, I'm dying. This is it. He says, it is finished. Is it, is it Jesus' mission? Is it his, like, why he incarnate came, to, came, took on human flesh, lived, and now his 33-year mission is finished? No, it's not even that. It's bigger. It's that the rescue plan of God, salvation for humanity, God's glorification for all eternity, it's finished. It's done. It's complete. That's what that word means, finished. To telestai in Greek, it means finished, complete, perfected, done. There's no other steps God needs to do to accomplish his plan of salvation. It's done. There's nothing else he's waiting to do. Now, obviously, we're sitting here waiting for Jesus to come back, and we'll talk through that here in a second. But God has fully and finally accomplished what he needs to do to rescue you and me. That's what we're going to be talking about today. So let me start by praying. Father, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you that we're not waiting to see what you're going to do. There are those in history past that were, and we're trying to figure out what your plan was, but now we look back and we see it, God. We see it clearly, and you've preserved these truths for us in your scriptures. You've showed us that 
you're done. You've completed everything that needs to be completed. Help that to resonate in us. Help us to dwell on that and see what the implications are of that in our lives. And Father, as we read, for, read through your word this morning, I pray that you would help us to see your full, sovereign, providential plan for all creation. That you started from before creation, before time began. You had us sitting in this room right here, right now in mind. And we thank you for that. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Finishing something is, is good. It's fun. I am a very task-oriented individual. Check boxes are my life. Um, and it's funny, right, if you think about it, like whatever you finish, and you finish a race that you've been training for, a book that you've read, right, a task at work, a class, right, everybody that's out of school now, right, like we finished, you finished. There's, there's, there's joy in that. There's happiness in that. You're like, awesome. I, I did something. The harder it is to finish, the more rewarding it is at the end. We talked about that a little bit last week, right? Like finishing something, completing something, it's good. It feels good. In fact, for me, it's, it's, uh, this is something that I, that I struggle with because if I don't finish something, <laughs> I then don't feel good and I don't have peace about it and I don't have contentment and that's not the right answer. <laughs> that's a separate sermon. But what, what, what Jesus is saying here is it is finished. He has completed it. And here's what's funny is when we finish something, we might get a trophy. We might get a promotion. We might get a grade. We might get whatever, right? And those are good. And kind of that's, sometimes that can be the point, but it's not always the point, right? A lot of times that's just, it just kind of, it's like the icing on the cake. You're like, I finished it. I'm excited because I finished it. Um, my chimney was leaking, and I, I finally finished it. But it was not fun to do. In fact, you can talk to Juliet. I'm like, this was a disaster. I should have never started this, right? That's, that's one way that you can go. But, but when you finish, you're like, okay, we're good. I finished it. Nobody gave me a trophy, <laughs> right? I walked inside and said, hey, babe, it's done. And she said, awesome, can we start a fire tonight, <laughs> right? So sometimes there's icing on the cake, and Jesus coming back is that icing on the cake. It, it's, the, it's the reward, it's the full consummation, it's the full appreciation of what has happened. But it's not a task in and of itself that needs to happen. I mean, let, let, me, let me back that up real quick. It does need to happen, but it's not that God is waiting for that to happen in order to affect what he wants to accomplish. Does that make sense? That's a bad misspeak there. All right. So, so here is God who's got this entire plan of salvation. And Jesus, dying on the cross, says, it is finished. What's finished? Conflict. Conflict. What did, <laughs> Warner, you stole, my, you stole my thunder on that, that, ser, that, or that verse. Break my heart for what breakers. If there is a summary to this sermon, it's that. That's the problem. My heart does not break for the things that God's heart breaks for. And it should. 
Isn't that, isn't that our predicament? I get angry at things. Sometimes I'll even call it righteous indignation. But it's not. It's just anger. My heart doesn't break for the sin of others. It judges. And I go and live a life that is breaking God's heart at times, and I'm unrepentant or unrecognizing of it. You see, the conflict is that God has an opinion about things. His opinion's right. And we have an opinion about things. And when they're lined up, peace. And when they're not, conflict. That's it. That's our problem. That's, that's the internal struggles you feel when you go, I, I ought not have done that. I shouldn't feel like that. I shouldn't do this. Whatever that circumstance is, it's conflict. And this is what Jesus is saying. It's finished. I have now brought peace. And we've seen this. Jesus has been talking about peace all through the, the end. Well, John has been documenting peace in Jesus' life, especially in this final week as he walks towards the cross. Right? And what, what does Jesus tell us? You're going to have peace in the midst of sorrow and persecution. When the world hates you, you will still have peace. And he says, the peace that I'm going to give you isn't based on your strength. It isn't based on how good you are or anything like that. The peace that I'm going to give you is based on the strength of the Father. It's his grip that holds you. And he says that this, this peace is going to be so prevalent in your life that you'll experience this daily with God. Your heart will break for what breaks God's heart. That's peace. That's what we strive for. And this conflict, this didn't start in, in John. The problem isn't in, during Jesus' life. This conflict started in the Garden of Eden, right? Turn over to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. We're going to do a lot of flipping, so bear with me here as I, as I go through this. John 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. She had a desire. You see, prior to this point, God fulfilled all Adam and Eve's desires. God was their fulfillment. It was in God that they found their peace and contentment and satisfaction. That should be where we're at, right? That's how God designed this to be. That's how he designed our creation to be. But he also gave us free will. He, gave us, he created us in his image. And so what ends up happening is this. Eve sees it, Adam sees it, they go, we want that. Well, God, God said, don't want that. <laughs> conflict. And so the conflict begins back in Genesis 3, 6. You can turn over to Genesis 11, uh, four, and you read the next piece of conflict. And, and this, I'm not going to go through the entire Old Testament or we'd be here forever. But in Genesis 11:4, 4, they, here's, here's like, this is post the flood. 
And the people are like, hey, we're going to build ourselves a tower, the Tower of Babel. You guys have heard of this, right? And it says, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We want a name for ourselves. This one resonates a little bit more these days, doesn't it? Fame. We want accolades. We want to be known. That's a tough one. And that's, I mean, especially if you're sub-25 in here, that's a really tough one. And so this is where they were at. And so they wanted a name, and God goes, you do have a name. You're a child of God. (laughs) Isn't that a good name? No. No, can I have a different one? I want to be known for something other than my faithfulness to you, God. Conflict. Conflict. Fast forward to 1 Samuel. Chapter 8, verse 7. The Israelites were living life. God was their king. Things were good. Kind of. <laughs> and this is what it says. Wow. So let me, let me back up real quick. So they ask Samuel, and they go, hey, we don't want you, Samuel, a priest, our intercessor between us and God. We, we want a king just like everybody else. We want to be like the rest of the nations. And look at what God says. It says, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Conflict. You know, God, I know, I know you're, you're fair and you're just and you're loving and you're merciful and you're gracious, but can we get a human king that's not any of those attributes? <laughs> and so that's what they pursue. You see, this conflict doesn't reside there, right? Like, we could go through all of it, and we see the conflict in our own lives, right? You're with me on this. We all have conflict. We have conflict within our marriages, in our relationships, in our friendships, at work. We have conflict everywhere. Why? Because we don't get the things we want. If everybody would just give me what I wanted, I wouldn't have a conflict with you. Isn't that right? You see, it's, it's what we want to satisfy us. And God goes, but what about what satisfies me? What, what, what glorifies me? And so this is God's plan, to remove this conflict, to remove it. And, and here's the beautiful part. The way God removes the conflict is not by making you lose. He doesn't make you lose. He doesn't say, stop, don't worry about it, you're fine, He doesn't do that. He changes what you want. He changes your heart so that it's not a conflict anymore because you want the same thing as God. Well, there's no conflict then. Right? In all of those relationships, if you have aligned desires, no conflict. And so this is what God does. This is his plan of salvation. This is how he rescues us. This is such a beautiful... I mean, if you could just package this up and remind ourselves of this every day, 
that this is how God rescues us. He reconciles us to himself. He changes our hearts. He breaks our heart for what breaks his. That's it. It's this beautiful plan, and this is what he has been planning and working through time and time again all throughout Scripture. We read this in history. Go to Jeremiah 31, verse 33. This is God's plan to change our hearts. He says this, he says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Peace. Peace. That's it. This is God's plan. We're getting back to the crucifixion here in a second, okay? This is his plan. So when Jesus says it's finished, he's saying peace has been achieved. I don't know if he's looked around much, but it doesn't seem as though peace has really been achieved. But again, this goes back. Everything God needed to do to accomplish his plan of salvation has been achieved accomplished and we will see it and embrace it and rejoice in everything when we are finally brought into the presence of god we will have complete peace what we will have aligned is our desires our the things that we're searching for looking for satisfaction will be finally and fully found in god that's it every desire of your heart right now every every place that you seek satisfaction will be fully aligned with God, and you will find that completely and finally fulfilled, perfected in his presence. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's, that's what we long for and hope for, and we have an opportunity to practice that now. It's, it's not going to be perfect because we still wrestle with sin. This is why we gather in a community, because we remind each other, that's awesome, not perfect i know you feel satisfied there but god's really our satisfaction right yeah help me remind me of this we all need to remind each other of this right because that's where we find ourselves in this trap so when jesus says it's finished he's saying that this final and full plan god's sovereign providential plan to restore Peace has been accomplished in the death of Jesus on the cross. And so what John is going to do is he's going to walk through each of these pieces. Every little, like these, these seemingly insignificant pieces, we're going, to, we're going to unpack them and we're going to look at them and we're going to see that nothing caught God by surprise. It's not as if God was like, oh no, what do I do now? Let me go back and try to figure out the plan B or plan C. That's not it. This was, this was God's plan from before time cr was created. Before the beginning. God had this plan and he unveils it and shows us and then executes it in Jesus. So turn over with me to John chapter 19, 22 and we're going to bounce around through what Savannah just read. It says, Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. 
king of the Jews. That's what he says, right? He's like, I wrote king of the Jews. I wrote it in three languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Hebrew. There it is. It's all written out. See what, you know what is so amazing about that? Is that Rome, he was doing that out of spite, really. It was sarcastic. It was tongue-in-cheek. And the, the Jews were like, no, 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 don't, don't, please, don't write that. That's why we're crucified. That's why we're trying to kill this guy. Because he's saying this. If you then say it, all you're doing is reinforcing what everybody's believing. Don't do that. And Pilate, out of his own arrogance and his own selfishness and his own ego, goes, I've written what I've written. You already made me crucify him. I'm done. I'm not, I'm not moving a finger. I'm not changing this. You go, wow. Why would that have been the case? We'll turn over to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. You see, he had to be called king of the Jews. He formally gained the title under the penmanship of Pilate. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humbled, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We quoted this, right, when Jesus walks in or rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Right? Here's the fulfillment of scripture. They said, like, he wasn't, just, he wasn't just pretending to be a king. He's now been given the title of king by the Romans. It's pretty impressive. If you had said that a week prior, hey, the Romans are going to call Jesus the king of the Jews, you would go, that's not going to happen. They don't want competition. How could this possibly happen? In verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. What is he saying? Conflict, war, done. That's what he's talking about right there. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You see, Zechariah prophesies this of the Messiah that is to come. So Jesus rolls in and goes, well, I'm the king of the Jews. And the Romans actually declare him to be such. Now turn over to John uh, 19, verse 23. This is the soldiers. This This is an awesome one, right? Because these soldiers are unwitting participants in the fulfillment of prophecy, which is beautiful, right? So verse 23, it says... uh, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. Now just pause there for a second. What a, what a, what a worthless, transient thought that John's going down. Why are you talking like, your, your Messiah is dying on a cross, and you're talking about the soldiers. And, and, and honestly, the soldiers did this for everybody. This wasn't an abnormal thing. This dividing up of the garments, like, that would have been a normal thing to do. So why is John focusing on this? Look at what it says next. 
This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Go back to Psalm 22, verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is David writing this psalm. Now, now David's writing this. He's not, he's writing how he feels. And if you go back and read the rest of Psalm 22, what do you get to? Look at the very first verse in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? That's Jesus on the cross in the Gospel of Matthew. He accounts of that. Psalm 22, Jesus is going, go read that. Go read that, because I'm fulfilling it right now. See, and when David wrote it, David was just sorrowful, right? Most likely, and this is a little bit of conjecture, I don't think he thought it was prophetic. He, this is how he felt. He's like, I feel like this. Like, they're just, they're going to crucify me. Like, they're, they're just, they're going to kill me. They hate me. And so this is how David is expressing this. And what, what God does, it goes, hey, David, you write this down. You write this into a psalm. We're going to preserve this for a little bit, and you'll see why here in a bit. And this is exactly what God does. The soldier's seemingly insignificant acts preserved Scripture. When Jesus had a tunic that was seamless, when he put that on, when he got that, when he bought that, when it was made, or however he got it, when Jesus put that on, he went, I know what this is for. I know. This is God's providence. This is God's sovereignty to bring about peace to the nations, to each individual. 2,000 years from now, there's going to be people in a church. There's going to be people all over the world that are going to be worshiping me, and this is for them as he puts on his tunic. This is the sovereignty of our God. This is how he sees and executes this plan. This next one is... I think maybe my favorite. <laughs> so look at uh, verse 28, John 19, 28. The soldiers were unwitting participants, right? They're just doing kind of what they do. They're like, you know, gambling for clothes. Like, this is just whatever, right? But Jesus, Jesus knew what was happening, right? Jesus, in his omniscience, knows the next steps. He knows the next thing that's going to happen. When we read back in John, he knows the hearts of man, right? So look at what it says in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Jesus says, pretty ordinary. He's been beaten. He's hanging on a cross not super abnormal to thirst, but Jesus says, I thirst. And without going into a ton of this, you can go back and look, but Jesus was offered uh, wine mixed with gall. You guys remember this? And it's not in John, it's in, I think it's in the Gospel of Matthew or maybe Luke. And that was a, uh, it was a drug, basically. It would, it would deaden the pain. And Jesus denies it. He says, no. But now he says, I thirst. And in fact, what we'll see is they're going to give him 
some sour wine to drink it, and he'll drink it. Look at what it says in Psalm 69, verse 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. I don't think I put this verse up there, but if you look at John 19, the very next verse, verse 29, it says, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they, the soldiers, put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. The king of the Jews is being crucified and he commands the soldiers to give him wine. And they obey. They don't know why they're doing it, but they're doing it. And Jesus goes, I'm going to say I thirst, and the soldiers are going to jump too. Do you guys get that? Like, the soldiers could have gone, yeah. That, that's probably what I would have thought that the soldiers would, how they would have responded to a criminal saying, I'm thirsty. Well, you're also dying, so good luck with both of those. But they don't. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there. Why? Who brought wine out to the crucifixion? And sour wine at that. And what do they do? They grab a hyssop branch, hold on to that, we'll get to that at the end, and they give it to him. And Jesus goes, I knew you would. I'm fulfilling things here. Do you guys see this? Like, this is so incredibly beautiful. And this is, this is how God is affecting his entire plan of redemption and salvation. Like, this is just, like, mind-boggling. Now, maybe this one's my favorite one. Go to, go to verse 31. It says, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. The timing of God's sovereignty is perfect. Perfect. Let's, let's just back up this a little bit. Okay? So it's, uh, it's the middle of the night, Garden of Gethsemane, right? They're staying up. It's, it's, it's late at night that night. They had just eaten dinner. Peter denies Jesus when the rooster's crowing in the morning. If you have a rooster, they don't really just crow in the morning, but we'll leave that. Um, we don't have a rooster anymore. Um, so, but the rooster's crowing in the morning. Peter's warming his hands by the fire, right? It's, it's dawn, the trial, the sham of the trial happens. You guys read about that in your small groups, hopefully this last week. Matthew says at noon, Jesus starts carrying the cross. It's on Friday at noon. Matthew says that there was darkness over the land between noon and three. And at three, we read John chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 3 p.m. Friday. Saturday's the Sabbath. Starts at sunset. I googled it. Sunset's about 7 p.m. <laughs> 
April-ish, assuming the universe and things have stayed about the same. I think they have. So you've got four hours between Jesus' death, right? I don't know when he got crucified in between 12 and 3. We don't really know that, right? But, but from 3 o'clock till 7 o'clock, he's got to be off that cross. Why? Because this is the Sabbath. But it's not just any Sabbath. It's the Passover Sabbath. It's a high day, right? You guys, all, these things are aligning, right? Easter, Passover. This was a big Sabbath. This was an important Sabbath. Now, they would never let anybody stay on the cross anyway. Jews wouldn't because it would defile the land. So they would always bring them down before sunset. But look at what it says here in John chapter 10, verse 18. No one, oh, sorry, I should have done verse 17. Here's verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Did you, did you just read over that? Because I certainly did when it says that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Can any of us just choose to die? How, right? Like Jesus was like, and now. I'm done. He gave up his spirit. Like he chose when to do it. He's like, I got, I got to do this now. And in fact, it was unusually quick. The other two criminals, what happened to them? They were still alive. And they're like, hey, we got to take these guys off the cross. Go through. Break their legs. Rock and roll. And they get to Jesus, and they're like, he's already dead. What a weak king this was. He goes, no, no, no. My timing. My timing needs to be good. Verse 36, John 19, verse 36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Jesus is like, if I live and I'm getting close to sunset, they're going to break my bones. I, my bones can't be broken in order for me to fulfill prophecy. Well, what prophecy is he talking about? Okay, you ready for this one? This is cool. Go back to Exodus chapter 12. This one might be my favorite. <laughs> you see, it's the Passover. It's the Passover. What was Passover celebrating? It was the Jews' escape from Egypt. Right? And here's the instructions. Exodus chapter 12, verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. This was, this was Friday night they were doing this. And Saturday morning, on the Sabbath, the angel of the Lord came through and struck down the firstborn of the Egyptians, and the Israelites were able to flee. And God fulfilled his promise that they would be in slavery for 400 years, and so many other promises that we can go back and look through it. And, and so here's God providentially going, here's what is going to happen. But this Passover wasn't just the Passover. 
It was pointing towards a Passover lamb that was going to be even more important. And so what they did is they ate this Passover lamb on Friday night. It was a great feast. They celebrated this. And here's the instructions for when you eat the Passover meal. You ready? Verse 46, Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. And, you, and you're going to put the, the blood on your door with a hyssop branch. Here's John showing us that, that Jesus is our Passover lamb. He's the final and full sacrifice for the atonement for us. He's going to cover over us. That's what, that's what that word meant, that, that God was going to cover over the Israelites when the angel of the Lord passed over. And so they would be covered. They would be protected. And now Jesus, as our Passover lamb, covers us and protects us. This is a final atonement for our sins. You see, it was finished. All right, go back to John chapter 19, verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. You see, when John was working through this, right, and he's writing this, there were people at the time saying that Jesus was never really here in the flesh. It's called docetism. And they, they believed that he was just a spirit. He looked like he was in the flesh. John's trying to make it very clear. They stabbed him, <laughs> blood came out, and water. And I'll tell you that there's a bunch of, you know, symbolic interpretation of what that blood and water was. And we're not going to dwell on it, and I don't really know, and I think it's in, maybe intentionally vague. But the point is, is that he was actually alive, and at this point, he was actually dead. He was dead, like dead, dead. Like you stab him with a, a, a spear, and he doesn't flinch. He's dead. And blood came out. He's dead. And that's what John's pointing to. But then look at what it says in verse 37. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So how is Jesus going to get the Romans to pierce him, to stab him in this crucifixion? There's, there's no stabbing in a crucifixion. It's asphyxiation. There's piercing of the hands, but this isn't what he's talking about here. Look at Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and mercy and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Then go back to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. You see this? Peace. Peace. He was pierced for our transgression. This is so when Jesus says it's finished, 
He's going, no kidding, it's finished. I've fulfilled all of these prophecies. You've been, you've been prophesying these, you've been talking about these, you've been thinking about these, how do they apply? And he goes, it's done. With my wounds, you're healed. You're reconciled. This is what Jesus is telling us. I have given you peace, finally and fully complete. This is what God does. This is the gift of Christmas, right? This is what his birth, this is what it was all for. And this is why we relish in this and we go, this is absolutely amazing. This is God's sovereign peace that he planned from all eternity past for you and for me. Not just peace in our, in our circumstances, although he will give us peace in our circumstances, right? In the, in the conflict that we have, in the difficulties of life, in persecution and sorrow, he gives us peace. But he also gives us a more important peace, a peace with the Heavenly Father. Aligned hearts. Break my heart for what breaks yours. It's so absolutely incredible. And so this is what we look at. And so go back to Hebrews chapter 10. The author of Hebrews picks up on this. That's probably an understatement. But Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, the Passover lamb, every other sacrifice in the Old Testament, right? This is what he's talking about. Make perfect those who draw near. They can never make you perfect. It says, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. That's the point. That's the point of this whole first part of this book. Pointing back to God, pointing back to him, pointing to our need for him, pointing to our need to find our satisfaction in him, helping us see the conflict that we have internally and with him. Verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Go forward to verse 14. For by a single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Perfected us. You ready for this? That word perfected, it's the same word as the word finished. When Jesus says it is finished, to telestai, it's the same word here. When he says, you've been perfected, you're finished, not in a bad way, you're complete, you're done. This is beautiful. This is what Jesus, the whole plan of all eternity past was to make you complete. And how does he do that? We're going to talk about that at EV. What does it look like? How do we actually see this peace? Because you guys are all probably looking at me now going like, yeah, I don't really feel perfect per se. <laughs> but in God's eyes, you are perfect. So perfect that he dwells with you in the Holy Spirit. Somebody's going to live with you. They must think pretty highly of you. <laughs> God chooses to dwell with us because he has made 
us perfect. And he created us in his image. It was all the plan to bring his son and to redeem humanity, to reconcile us. Let me pray. Father, we, we are in awe.